You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Walter. That was good from the back. I like that. That was good. <laughs> well, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us this morning and worshiping with us. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. And as you've slogged through this book with us, perhaps we are almost to the end. You've got this week and two more weeks, and we are done with the book of Acts, right? You're not as excited as I thought you would be, but you know what? That's okay. We're going to finish this book, and we're right on the edge of it. We're looking at Acts chapter 26 today. We're going to do the whole chapter. All right, I promise you we won't be here until Golden Crowd closes, but we'll, we'll take a few minutes and study this together. But I've titled today's sermon, A Testimony of Hope. And what we see here in this chapter is that we see hope on full display in the life of Paul. And I know that perhaps you're like me, and there's been a moment in your life where you've longed for hope. You've been looking for something to hope in. You've been searching for it. You've been trying to find it. We've all been there. We all have different ways of how we define hope and what we're looking for when we say we long for hope, but we all want it. We all need it, to be very honest with each other. And as we begin to wrestle through this, I thought it'd be really helpful as we look at this passage today to begin to think through what is hope? What actually is hope? When we say, I hope this happens, or I hope we can do this, what is it we're actually trying to say and express I believe that here in this passage, Paul gives us an answer on what hope truly is supposed to be, and he shows us how that hope has come through in his life and transformed how he lives in such a way that we draw inspiration from it. And so today, as we look at this section of Scripture, I hope you're taking notes. And if you are, I want you to write down this first point that we see Paul describe a life without hope in the first few verses. Look with me at verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg for you to listen to me patiently. We've got to get a little bit of an orientation as we're in this section of Scripture of what's happening. So Paul's been brought before King Agrippa, and there's really three people we see in this section of Scripture that we need to know. We've got King Agrippa, who Paul's already referenced right there. King Agrippa is the king of Judah right now. He's a Roman figurehead. He serves at the pleasure of the Romans. He knows that what he does, all authority, all power he has, is given to him by Rome. He's also a descendant of Herod. And well, as we study through the scriptures, we don't have a lot of great experiences with the Herodian dynasty in Judah. You know, this is not a good group of people for Christians to be working with. But he's the guy we've got to stand before. We've got Festus, who's the current governor of Judea. He is a Roman appointee. He's a political appointee. And he is there merely to keep things rolling. His power is also tied to Rome. He can do nothing without Rome. And then we have Paul, who is 
essentially through the last half of the book of Acts, our main character, if you will. We're seeing the story through his eyes. We're understanding what he's experiencing. And this is giving us some insight into what God is doing in this world. And so as we're picking up here, we have in just the last chapter, we have Agrippa saying, I don't even know why we're here. Someone explain to me why we've got this man in front of me and what we're doing. And Paul is here beginning to give his defense, laying out exactly why he believes that he's been brought before King Agrippa. Look at verse 4. The manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of the hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? As we stop right here, we see Paul is beginning his defense, and he's doing so by sharing about his life before he encountered Jesus. See, as he tells us here, he's very public and open about his faith. He's got a strong faith, a strong sense of obedience in his works. He's known as a Pharisee among the Jews. He is someone they look to and go, this is the righteousness of God being manifest in the world through this man named Paul. Yet in verse 6, he says that he's on trial for the very hope that he now holds. This is why I think we want to talk about what hope is, because hope is is a funny word, right? It's not a funny four-letter word, but it's a word that we use in a variety of different ways. When I looked it up this week, there are actually 10 different definitions that go with the word hope. 10 different definitions for a single word here. We use it so often, so often as we're referring to things as kind of like a fairy tale, like I hope that my kid plays in the NBA or something like that. I hope that I can do this. We, we talk about hope in, in this way of things that we don't even really have confidence are going to happen. We just are like wishing in the sky, I hope that this comes true one day. We use it just to dream and wish. Other times when things are going right, we use it in that sense. Wow, this conversation's going really well. I hope that I might get this job. Wow, this relationship seems like it's working. I hope that this might move to something more. Even in just those examples, we use hope in so many funny ways. Yet Paul here talks about hope. He talks about hope that he has. And this hope is rooted in the God who has been keeping his promise to the tribes of Israel for years. The God who fulfilled this promise in the form of Jesus Christ, who has come to seek and save the lost. The God who promised he would be with them to the end of the age. The God who promised the Messiah would come back for his people and keep them with him for all of eternity. You see, Paul's hope here is not in something that's a fairy tale. His hope is not in something that he hopes is going to work out, that he thinks is going well. His hope is in something that is certain. His hope is in something that he believes in, that he rests his confidence in, is going to happen. Dallas Willard describes hope as this. 
Hope is the confident anticipation of good. Hope is the confident anticipation of good. This is what Paul means when he starts to describe hope. He's saying hope is this fact that I know God will work these things out for his glory and for my good. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what I'm going to be involved in, but I can rest in this truth that God will work these things together for the good of those who believe in him. I know that's what Paul thinks because those are the very words he wrote in Romans 8. Paul believes that the good of his life is going to be rooted and anchored in the truth that Jesus still reigns, that God is in control, and that no matter what's happening to him, no matter what he's going to experience, the thing that he can hope in is that God is still God. Now, Paul says this. He's a bit incredulous. Why am I on trial for this? This very thing we believe. But there's a little more to tell us about his life before he encountered Jesus. Verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul's telling us that he did many things in his life before he encountered Jesus, things that he's not proud of. See, Paul's like us. He's not perfect. And if we look at Paul's life, if we're being honest, Paul's not exactly the type of guy that we would want to be friends with. I mean, he literally tells us here that he has anger problems, that he's a legalistic rule follower, he's a murderer, he's a rioter. I mean, everything that the Jews are saying about him, he's done. Yet, if we're honest, even as we see that about Paul, we recognize that we are just as corrupt and broken on our own. That if we could see, truly see down into the souls of one another, see what's resting inside our very hearts, we would not want to be friends with one another. We wouldn't like each other. We wouldn't care to talk to one another. Simply because inside of the human heart, we are broken, we are corrupt. Paul is so committed to the law to his righteousness of his works, that he was willing to kill Christians for their faith. He was so angry with their beliefs that he would chase them down when they fled persecution. Paul and his past, and the story that God has allowed to unfold of his life, he was an enemy of God. There was a time in his life when he was angry and fighting against God, but then he met Jesus. That's what we see in the next verse. In the next verse, we see that Paul is encountering hope in his life. That's our second point. I want you to write that down. He's encountering hope. Look with me at verse 12. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul begins this section of his defense by simply explaining how he met Jesus. Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. We've preached through that. You may be familiar with that story and He's on his way to fulfill more evil. But even as he's on this journey to do more evil, Jesus seeks him out. Even while he is an enemy of God, God himself goes to him to rescue him from his sin and shame. This blinding light appears from the sky. He's knocked off his horse. And he hears a voice asking, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is speaking directly to him. And he's telling him that his work of persecuting Christians is pointless. It's meaningless. It is working against the very nature of who God is and what he's doing in this world. Paul's not quite sure who he's speaking to. He says, Lord, he's trying to appeal to whoever this greater being or person is. And Jesus makes it very clear to him that the Savior of the world is speaking to him. Paul's then given a purpose. He's given a purpose, and his purpose is to be a servant and a witness of all that Jesus has done. He's to go to both the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's to tell them the gospel so that they may be forgiven and called children of God. You see, God took this broken angry man who was a murderer and turned him from someone that we would not want to associate with but turned him into someone that we admire. I mean truly as we look into the scriptures for people that we think are heroes of the faith Paul makes that list every time doesn't he? Yet the same man that we might put towards the top of the list of people that we want to live like was an angry, broken man who was a murderer who had to literally be kicked off his horse or donkey by God himself so that he might see his brokenness. 
You see, Paul spent his life knowing about who the Messiah was, but his life was a wreck until he actually met the Messiah. When he met Jesus, everything changed for him. Everything. Paul got up from the ground and he entered into Damascus, a changed man. He was once an enemy of the church, a persecutor of the faith, and now he's his greatest proponent. He is responsible for one of the greatest missionary advancements of the gospel that we know in history, all beginning from this broken man who was an enemy of God. Maybe you can see this in your own life. Maybe you've got a story like this. And I know as we start thinking about stories and testimonies, you know, maybe you feel like yours isn't as dramatic as Paul, right? Like when you came to faith, you didn't get kicked off your motorcycle or something. Maybe that's your story. Maybe it's not. But what I would want you to understand is that every story of coming to faith, having your life transformed by encountering the good news of who Jesus is, is dramatic. Every story of crossing from death into life is worth telling. Maybe your story is that you met Jesus and everything changed. This is what we call transformation. That the old has passed away, the new has come. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're here and you, maybe you can't pinpoint exactly when your life was transformed by the gospel of Jesus. You know, I, I stand here and I couldn't tell you the exact date of when I came to faith, but I can tell you that it was in a dorm room at Charleston Southern, that it was the spring semester of 2008. And I can remember clear as day sitting in this room, my friend Jonathan sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for me and trusting in the good news of the gospel because of what Jesus has done. My question for you is simply this. When did everything change in your life? When was that moment where you can look back with clarity and go, this day, this time, everything changed because since that day, I've never been the same. If perhaps you can't mark it down, you're not sure, I would ask, did it change? Has there been a transformation? Has your life been fundamentally changed by who Jesus is and what he has done? Paul's life was radically transformed. He went from an angry, broken man who was a murderer to the greatest hero of the faith we could find in the New Testament. Paul continues to share his story in verse 19. He looks to King Agrippa and says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judah, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. 
that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul continues to share with what happened in his story after he met Jesus. He went to Damascus not to persecute, but to share the good news of the risen Savior. He did this around the known world, speaking to both Jews and Gentiles about this Savior. Through his labors, we see that most of the known world in that time was reached with the good news of the gospel. He told everyone he could meet that they needed to repent of their sins and look to Jesus for rescue and forgiveness because that was his story. This led him into some hot water a few years ago, about two years ago, as the scriptures tell us, with the Jews who have charged him with blasphemy. He's standing before King Agrippa to simply proclaim that even the prophets spoke of Jesus coming to this earth to die for our sins. After he's gone to the cross, he's suffering for us, bearing the weight of our sin and shame. He would rise from the dead, proclaiming hope in the form of the gospel to the very people who crucified him. He came proclaiming that he has risen from the grave, that he has power over life and death, and that if anyone would believe in him, they would have eternal life. Paul believes that God is working these things out, this this very trial that he's in, perhaps, so that people might respond to the good news of the gospel. You see, he has this hope, this confident assurance of good. He has hope that God will do extraordinary things through ordinary people. He has hope that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. I just want you to consider some of the words of the fathers of the modern mission movement. Just some selected passages, statements from these men. Don't worry about writing these down. You're going to get the notes tomorrow or or Tuesday, but I I want you to hear these. I don't want you to worry about writing them down. I want you to listen to them, right? You'll get the, the, the citation and all that later. William Carey. Missionary to India, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. His mindset is that we're going to attempt great things because these big, bold prayers, these big, extraordinary things, this is what honors God because we're going to ask to do things that only God can make work out. We're going to do these big things because God's going to have to show up to deliver or it's going to fail. David Livingstone, a missionary to Africa. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? He spent his life in Africa, died in Africa, because he believed that the call that he received from God to proclaim the message of a risen Savior was an honor, was a gift. Ian Keith Falconer, missionary in the Middle East, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land filled with light. He also died 
in the mission field, giving of himself so that people who are far from God might see, hear, and respond to the name of King Jesus. C.T. Studd, a missionary to China, Christ wants not nibblers of the possible, but grabbers of the impossible. These missionaries to China, India, Africa, the Middle East, they all had hope just like Paul. They had hope in the power of the gospel to change lives. They had a hope that this man named Jesus, this fully God, fully man, this being that we worship, that he was still in the business of saving souls. They believe that his blood has not lost any power. It is still powerful enough to save. They gave their lives towards this goal of seeing the power of the gospel transform the countries they were in. They expected God to show up to saturate these countries with the gospel. Paul lived his life in the same way. He had hope in the power of the gospel to change lives because it had changed his. Where did this hope come from? It came because Paul could see that he had been transformed by the good news of the gospel. Where did these men, where did their hope come from? It came from this fact that they had been completely transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus. What about you? Do you share the same hope as Paul and these missionaries? Do you share in this hope that you've been transformed by the good news of the gospel? Do you share in this hope that the people we love, the places we live, can be radically transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is still in the business of saving people? The answer for me is yes. I believe in those things. If the answer is yes for you, if we share in this hope, we are called to tell others about what Jesus has done for us. There's no alternative. We are called to proclaim that Jesus has saved our souls and this is what he's done. If Paul could stand before us, he would simply say, there was a time in my life when I was angry and in rebellion against God. But then I met Jesus and everything changed. Since then, I have had peace and hope, certainty in who God is and what he has done. And then he would just simply look at us and go, do you have a story like that? Do you have a story, a testimony like that? Paul lived his life around this question. Do you have a story like that? We see that in the last section here. That Paul is committed to asking this question. He's committed to reproducing the hope that he has. That's our third point. Look with me at verse 24. And as he, Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, King Agrippa himself, knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner hidden away. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man would have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Festus, the Roman governor we referenced earlier, he makes his appearance in this chapter and he just simply can't believe what he's hearing. He thinks that Paul is a nut, perhaps. How could a man who's been in prison after two years have any hope whatsoever? If you also remember, Festus has a deal with the Jews that if he gives Paul over to death, they will put down some rebellions in Judah and they'll make him look good. So he's got some self-interest at play in here. He wants everybody to look at Paul with crazy eyes thinking he is a lunatic. But Paul continues proclaiming that he is speaking the truth. He appeals to the king, King Agrippa, and he says, King, you have heard these things for yourself. Do you believe in the prophets? See, Paul's the same as he always is in the scriptures. Everywhere we go, Paul is simply asking people, what do you believe? What is your story? He's concerned about those who are around him. He calls King Agrippa to even a response to the message he's heard. Because he's heard the gospel, you've heard the gospel, clearly described from Paul. And Paul has the boldness when he is on trial to look at the very judge himself and go, do you have a story like mine? Have you been transformed by the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done? Agrippa finds this rather bold. He can't believe that Paul's spending his time of his defense to try and convert him. Paul says his only goal in this time, the only thing he hoped to have happen, was that all might hear the good news so they would become like him, redeemed. This is what Paul wanted. He said, I'll mark this day down as a win because you have heard the good news of the gospel and you've been called to respond to this message of hope that Jesus has given us. Agrippa and his council step aside and they're all of one accord. They all look at Paul and they go, he's innocent. He's as innocent as can be. He's clearly not guilty of any of these crimes. But they can't stop the appeal. It's already been put before the Roman Empire. The emperor is going to hear this. It would cost so much political capital for them to pull it back. They're saying, our hands are tied. It's got to go before the emperor. Paul is going to go to Rome in chains. He's going to stand before the emperor. And he's going to offer his defense. We've got no alternative 
He has to go. I want you to see something here in this chapter that we've studied together today. There's something we see in the way that Paul weaves together his defense. He does something that I think is very instructive for us, very helpful for us to understand as Christ followers. You see, each part that he lays out, he talks about his life before he met Jesus. He talks about his encounter with Jesus. He talks about his life after encountering Jesus. And then he asks for a response. What he is laying out for us is how we are to share our testimony. This is exactly how we are to share our testimony of hope. You see, Paul could stand before you and say, there was a time in my life when I was angry and an enemy of God. And then I met Jesus and everything changed. Since then, I have had peace and confidence, certainty in God. Do you have a story like that? You see, we all have a story like that. Mine is there was a time in my life when I was lost and confused. But then I met Jesus and everything changed. Since then, I have hope and certainty. Do you have a story like that? My question for you today is not anything dramatic, anything perhaps innovative, but simply this. Do you have a story like Paul, like myself, like any Christian should? Has your life been transformed by the good news of the gospel? Because if it has, you are called to share the story of what Jesus has done in your life so that others might see, hear, and respond to the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here and you don't have a story like that. Maybe you can't point to the date or the time when your life changed. Maybe you're not even sure that life change has happened. The beautiful, beautiful hope we have, the good news, if you will, for us today, is that Jesus is still in the saving business. Your sins can still be forgiven. You can still be redeemed. You can still be made new. And all it takes is calling upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'll even pray here in a moment where you can pray with me that Jesus would forgive you of your sins. It is simply crying out to God that you, Lord, need to work and move in my life because I'm broken and I'm in need of a Savior. This is the hope we have that we have a God who is living and active and working in this world in the lives of his people so that we might glorify him and receive good from him. This is the hope that Paul had, that he knows no matter how his story will end, that all these things will work together for the good of those who believe. If you're looking for hope, if you're looking for good in this world, it starts with belief, belief in Jesus. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. We're thankful for this message of hope that has come from the scriptures, Lord. 
as we look back at this passage that happened thousands of years ago, nothing's changed about the world. There's still sin. There's still broken people. There's still a lot of stuff that we need you to work and move in. Lord, we're needing your grace and your mercy, your love, your forgiveness, even now. And Father, as I pray this, there are some of us who've been transformed by this good news of the gospel. We've trusted in you. Our story has been changed that we have that moment we've encountered Jesus and everything changed. This is a beautiful thing to celebrate and rejoice in, Lord. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for leading us into the family of God. Thank you for calling us your children. But Father, even as we're here, I recognize there may be others here who they have not had the same story. They've not encountered you, Lord. My prayer is that today, that they would encounter you, the living God, King Jesus himself. That they would look upon you, Lord, and they would confess their sins. They would lay out their issues, their problems, their struggles, Lord. And they would look to you and simply go, Lord, forgive me. Change my heart so that I might be like you. Lord, I pray that today is the day that lives are transformed by this message of hope. And that together we would all go forth as the people of God, proclaiming this message of hope that we have. Sharing very simply of who we were before Jesus, how we met him, and what life has been like since then. Lord, what a beautiful thing to be able to walk in the footsteps of one of the heroes of the faith, Paul. Simply sharing our story and calling people to respond to this message of hope. Lord, my prayer today is that we would look upon you, Lord. And wherever we are in this journey, that we would take that next step forward. Maybe it's a step of obedience. Maybe it's crying out to you for forgiveness. Whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that we would take that next step today of following you in faithfulness. Lord, bless us with your presence. Open our hearts and minds to the power of the gospel, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.